Why are data skills like data storytelling and AI readiness more critical than ever? How are venture capital firms enabling portfolio companies to greater innovation and growth? And what exciting technologies are raising the stakes for data skills across the global workforce? In this episode of Data Humanized, we'll answer these questions with Tara Stokes, principal on the deep tech team at Point72 Ventures. Welcome to Data Humanize, presented by Correlation One. In each episode, we bring you the unique perspective of enterprise leaders at the intersection of technology and humanity who are leading cultural transformation through the power of data. You'll also hear the real-life stories of learners who have graduated from the Data Science for All program and who are embarking on career pathways created by a more inclusive, collaborative, and effective workplace. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. Please visit the Correlation One website for more about how data literacy transforms enterprises and tell your friends about the Data Humanized podcast. Artificial intelligence is currently top of mind for the entire workforce. Salesforce surveyed 11,000 workers across 11 countries on digital skills, and 97% said businesses should prioritize AI skills in their employee development strategy. But are enterprises providing their workers with that training? Not even close. Over 87% of enterprises know they face a digital skills gap, according to McKinsey. And for companies thinking that they can just replace their workforce with AI-skilled new hires, think again. The pool of talent is limited and fiercely fought over. This competition for AI-ready talent is only going to get worse. The World Economic Forum says that more than 75% of companies are looking to adopt technologies like AI in the next five years. So it's more important than ever for companies seeking an AI competitive advantage to build customized training that improves their workforce's current data skills, including AI readiness, data storytelling, and basic data literacy. Today, I'm speaking with Tara Stokes, principal on the deep tech team at Point72 Ventures. We'll learn about how venture capital firms think about these critical data issues and their impact on their portfolio companies. And we'll also hear about Tara's perspectives on generative AI and other exciting technologies that are the focus of the deep tech team. Please enjoy my conversation with Tara. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Palmer, and thanks for joining Data Humanized. Today, I'm joined by Tara Stokes. She is a principal at Point72 Ventures which is the institutional private investment platform for Point72. Thanks for joining me today, Tara. Thank you for having me, Mark. Let's start off with your bio, which on um, Point72's site um, says you have, well, maybe give us a little bit of a background on what you, what you do, and also maybe add in that you know, you've got some interesting East Coast versus West Coast perspectives. I wanted to hear about that. Perfect, yeah. So. I am a principal on our deep tech team. That's a strategy within Point72 Ventures where we're investing in early stage uh, companies. So uh, you mentioned the East Coast, West Coast perspective. I'm originally from Philly, uh, went to North Carolina for undergrad, went back up north for uh, work in New York. Then I decided to go to grad school in California and then open an office in Miami. So a bit of a world tour here. And I think each region is really unique and special in different ways. So in the course of doing this job, I realized the West Coast has a lot of product visionaries. The East Coast has a lot of leader operators. 
um, that are really willing to roll up their sleeves. And then my team also invests a lot in Europe. So I'll throw that in as another coast and say they've got amazing academic founding teams. Uh, and it's one of the best parts of my job. I get to travel. Uh, I went to Toronto for the first time last week and I'm headed back at the end of the month. But I think there's a lot of great places to build amazing companies in today's world. For sure. I, I, that, that diversity is a really great way even to start off the conversation. Um, and it's a great background. What inspired and motivated you to get into investing and the crazy world of tech and about specifically the Point72 mission? Yeah. So I actually had a little bit of a winding path. I think Steve Jobs said it best that you connect the dots looking back. But I studied public policy and econ at Duke. I then went up to uh, New York, as I mentioned, and worked at Morgan Stanley for several years, first as a tech equity trader, then an investment banker before realizing I wanted to go back to school to get my MBA. So as you mentioned, I think I headed into that experience knowing that I was interested in investing. Given my prior experience, I always thought that that was going to be public market investing. And then the summer between my first and second year of business school, I got to do two amazing internships and realized that private markets are really exciting and were a great fit for my skill set. So after graduating, I joined Point72. Um, so looking back, they all connect the right way. But I think in the moment, uh, it'd be a little uh, strong to say that I, I knew exactly what did you study at Duke as the father of a recent Duke grad with a history oh. degree? <laughs> um, what, 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 connect those dots for me? I'm really kind of curious about the early stages of that journey. Yeah, so I studied public policy. I love the public policy department at Duke. I actually just had a call recently with one of my former professors a, a decade later. Um, I think that there's a lot of professors of the practice and that made uh, the classroom really dynamic. It made it engaging and it felt really tangible. So the thing that I've taken away from uh, my public policy and a minored in econ background is uh, twofold. One, I love current events. So that was the thread that I pulled when I first started tech trading. It's the thread I pulled today, trying to stay up on the latest technology and and doing the kind of the like work to make sure that I'm up to speed on what's happening in the world and how things are transforming. But there's also a really practical element of that as well that I think I became a really good writer. Um, in our profession, you have to be clear and concise. And I think I pull from those skill sets from my Duke days um, all the time when I'm writing investment memos. Well, it's a great, you know, this is in part why we call this podcast Data Humanized, right? Like what part of the theory is that... Uh... You know, in a, in the more tech we use, the more humanists we need um, to help balance, communicate, judge, manage it. So uh, you're the, the perfect person to be talking to. Talk about your team and the role. It's called Deep Tech, which is such a cool name. I don't know if DeepMind stole that from you or uh, evolved it or not, um, which is in the press uh, a lot nowadays. But can you tell us about what deep tech is all about at Point72 Ventures and really your role within within that team. Yeah, so taking a quick step back, Point72 since 2016 has invested over a billion dollars in over 120 portfolio companies. So we're mostly focused on seed and Series A investments. 
uh, for context, think a couple people with an idea to a newer startup that has maybe a few paying customers. And we're really focused as a ventures organization on uh, artificial intelligence, financial services, and enterprise technologies. So if we double click into those, I sit on this leave that does deep tech, and that's primarily focused on artificial intelligence. And we're really looking for applied AI most of the time. That means we're finding the latest technologies, understanding how those will lead to transformations, and then finding teams that have identified use cases in specific industries and are building those solutions. So is in applied AI, do you count generative AI, which of course is the, uh, we, we, we got through f five minutes of this discussion without talking about generative AI and chat GPT. So uh, is, that, is that inside that scope? I mean, do you consider that part of applied AI? I mean, is that just depends on how you apply generative AI to problems? For sure. I would include generative AI, I'd consider natural language processing, computer vision, uh, ML optimization. There's a lot that fall under that bucket. And it's really exciting because I think more than ever, generative AI is forcing us to cross, um, like cross pollinate, if you will, with the other sleeves, because it's really impacting every sector, including financial services. It's a massive space that you're, <laughs> that you just mentioned, right? On that, I think you call it a sleeve. What among the incredible, you know, noise in the AI space excites you the most for the maybe near and longer term future from a investment perspective? Because of course you, you, you need to figure out which of these companies, uh, you know, which are hype and which are going to, um, be sustainable, um, you know, companies. So what, what excites you the most about the kind of companies you're looking at? We spent a lot of time looking at large language models to better understand both their potential, but also their limitations. And we really double clicked into customer service. So if you think um, about the world today, I would say generative AI is um, to me going to drive productivity and collaboration. That's what's most exciting and most promising in contrast Customer service has a lot of information silos. It's really spiky in its request. And if we're being honest, like it's hard because customers aren't always the easiest people. So obtaining and hiring great talent tends to be tricky for organizations. I would say uh, generative AI can then move the needle on that and then help augment those workflows that require human review and do so to kind of increase the customer experience increase the customer service team experience and really drive value to the enterprises um, that are kind of in charge. As a board member of a, of a call center startup, a series round funded generative AI company with uh, seven patents and five pending, I can agree with you for sure that that's a, a huge space, right? Because if you think about applying that to, um, you know, to increasing empathy and em empowering workers and again, humanizing, I suppose, the, uh, the customer, uh, support and, uh, connection experience. It's a, it's a great, great area. So we, we can probably talk about this one quite a bit. Just a slightly shifting gears, right? From a venture capital perspective, as a woman, you're probably considered a diverse, a hire, uh, you know, I've been doing VC for over 20 years and. I think, especially from my experience on the East Coast, that's that's probably true. But oh, what's what's been your experience um, 
in you know the industry uh, as a uh, as a woman coming out of the Duke with public policy. That's a great. That's that is not the classic. Like I guess the classic uh, investor profile. But what what what's been your experience in the in the industry? I think I read the other day there was a Harvard Business Review article that women are less than fifteen percent of check writers. So. I think it's important to note that uh, women are underrepresented as the investor, but also as the venture-backed founders themselves. Um, so that's both my peers, but also my counterparties. And I just think I'm genuinely really grateful to work at Point72 Ventures, where we have not only women leading investments, but also um, we have women founders in our portfolio. So I think I'm encouraged by, as I look to the future, is first, I'm a big believer that um, different life perspectives drive better decision making. So that includes investment decisions. And second, for returns. So if you believe those two things, I think that uh, the sharp elbowed solo investing style of the past will kind of lose out ultimately to really collaborative, uh, diverse teams in the future. Can you give an example of a, of something where you think that you're, you know, maybe either from a, even, even from a public policy perspective or, um, you know, a, a, a woman's perspective, you know, you've had a very different lens on an investment or a, or, or a market or, or an application trend or some form of AI? Yeah. I personally think it all comes down to my life experience. I think the things that you noted are valuable. I think the fact that I grew up playing sports, I grew up as one of four people. That's what I mean by life experience change, how we all come to the table. I think as someone who um, can appreciate when my voice is heard, I really try to empower my own team to bring those life perspectives, be the different person in the room, play red team, play devil's advocate, and really have us engage in an interesting conversation because we'll all get to higher conviction um, once we've discussed it out. And that makes the journey even better once we get to yes. Very cool. Okay, so now the, the podcast is data humanized. So we've talked a lot about the human side. Uh, what about data? How do you incorporate data-driven factors into investment decisions at Point72? For really mature companies I, or on our spectrum, so uh, think Series A might be a good place to, in your mind, be thinking about these are folks with some paying customers, uh, typically. we. So series, so series A, excuse me, Series A would be a mature company on your spectrum. That's very good context because that uh, that's not what a lot of people might immediately think of. So, okay, Series A, mature company, so for data for them. Yeah, so for a more mature company for us, we would do really deep financial and customer analysis. And then for a less mature company, I think you can still take a data-driven approach to diligence that might be through market sizing as well as kind of an, um, an analysis of um, comps or how they propose to spend uh, the fundraise um, by looking at their budgets. So give an example of 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 using data data to decide an investment opportunity at that stage, because at that stage, sometimes the market's not clear yet, right? So how do you size the market, for example, or some other example, because these are very embryonic companies in the grand scheme of things that you're talking about. I, I happen to think the most exciting uh, stage, but, um, but they are early. So h- how do you think of maybe an example of using data there? Two, one, the way that we look at it at companies and one, how we do it internally ourselves. So when we look at companies, I think to your point of 
data humanized, uh, one of the best things about private market investing is it takes a little bit of creativity. You are uh, making a thesis around what the world will look like in 10 years, but using data to support that. So when you're doing those market sizing, um, you can do tops up, bottom down, kind of work your way in because there's not really um, one set answer. And that's what makes it really exciting. On our side, we really practice what we preach. So we take all these qualitative inputs and decide on which thematic areas we really want to dive into. We then make a market thesis so that by the time we even talk to a founder, we have kind of validated the market thesis and we're really just trying to learn more about their company thesis and the founder market fit of that um, specific entity. Gotcha. So you've got numbers for the market, numbers for the company, trying to match them up. You have your thesis, you, you have, you have a, you're going in and then you uh, test out your thesis on the particular company. like it. You happen to pick um, uh, someone from an amazing liberal arts college and university background. You picked one of the most technical fields to get into. So you're valuing artificial intelligence companies. So you talk about working with technical people on a daily basis, which can have a, which is another kind of form of diversity in the view of technology, right? Is, is more, you know, less about the technology, which is, you know, you kind of go down a rabbit hole very quickly. Can you give an example of when there's been a knowledge gap and how did you um, approach or, or close or, or, or try to, um, you know, work through that? A mismatch? Yes. If I'm doing my job correctly and poking around with the latest cutting edge technology, there will always be a knowledge gap. So I really encourage um, myself, my team uh, to just be intellectually curious, to ask questions, to do independent research in order to, as you kind of said, close that gap more so. So for me, I'm a little bit old school. I love to read. So whether it's articles, uh, papers, books even. And I also enjoy speaking with people. So um, friends, customers, potential users of these products, um, founders themselves are all great places for me to absorb information and make sure um, that I'm constantly learning in my seat. And then I also have teammates who love podcasts or videos. So I think the best way to close knowledge gaps is to figure out what works for you and then really just lean in. Talk about, you know, when you're evaluating founders themselves, one of the old adages of investing is you invest in the, what the jockey, not the horse, I think is the, uh, the, the, the metaphor, right? Like the, on, the, on, the, on the CEO and the founding team. What do you look for particularly in those people, you know, either on the data side or the humanist side? I think in early stage, the best part about where I'm investing is that both are really critical. Being a great problem solver means that you have to both understand um, kind of some of the more IQ elements to your field, as well as EQ. I think the best founders are folks that compel other people to kind of join them in their journey and just have a like endless grit and hustle that they are going to build kind of their vision. Those two things combined, as well as kind of a fit for the problem that they're building, right? Like we're not trying to build something way outside of our scope or lens. I think really empowers people to kind of build organizations um, that fulfill that mission. You know, talk a little bit about after the investment and how you help um, founders either leverage data or think about their business. Um, you know, entrepreneurs sometimes some of them are famously, you know, fascinated by the tech and not always as attentive to the numbers. Um, I might be projecting a little here. 
Um, or or how, how, how do you think about um, your investments? Because, you know, what happens after the investment is, uh, you know, sort of often more exciting and interesting and, and eventful than, uh, and then, than the pre-flight um, analysis. Love the question because it is critical and core to how we view partnerships. So the first thing we do is a kickoff workshop with kind of two objectives. The first is to introduce ourselves, our resources, and kind of, as I mentioned, we have a host of portfolio companies. So we can kind of give you some tips, tricks, and shortcut a couple common pitfalls when you're getting started. The second is to align on what your business objectives are as the founder, as well as your goals for the next fundraise. So by that, I mean, we set OKRs, objective key results. We set KPIs, key performance indicators that are able to be tracked and optimized for over time. The most critical thing that kind of comes out of that meeting in and of itself is this idea of a master KPI, something to constantly look to, to say, are we moving the ball forward? Are we getting to where we want to go? And I really believe, I'm sure you can relate to this, that in fast moving startup land, if you empower your employees to make data driven decisions by telling them what that North Star is, you're setting up the organization for success. First book tip on my side, measure what matters. You mentioned OKRs, very different than MBOs. You did a really nice job of explaining the sort of uh, uh, working with both. Um, I'm a, few, a huge fan of objectives and key results. And um, that's one of the, I think that's the sort of the, uh, the, the book that defined it all. So uh, a lot of people say, oh, they're the same thing. But read that book, you'll see it's not. So I'm glad you brought that up. So talk about uh, hiring. Um, another one of the big topics when you're starting a company where I think um, diversity and different opinions in terms of how you construct teams, put together um, uh, great teams. How, how do you work with your portfolio? And do you have you know, I work with Vista and they're kind of famous of a, a methodology to um, to think about uh, hires as you bring them into the company. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think hiring, again, is one of those things that, to your point, to bring those life perspectives around the table needs to be really well structured. So the two tips that I give out is first, decide what great will look like in that role and design a spec that really compels that individual to apply. The second is, bring your team along with you. It should be a really interactive experience where the candidate and your team gets to know each other and makes that fit. But to do so, make sure all the interviewers really know what they're in charge of evaluating. It doesn't have to be the same for everyone. So have everyone kind of tackle a different piece of the pie, if you will. And then the last portion is I'm a big fan of project-based um, work and having something to dissect, like dissect and talk about, um, kind of give people a folk uh, an idea of what it would look like being on your team. So um, for me, that means doing things that uh, drive the candidate to a data-driven recommendation. And by that, I can assess kind of their ap aptitude for um, thinking through kind of how do they logically break a puzzle down and put it back together in a way that um, presents a recommendation. Are there core least common denominator skills or elemental skills that you think are essential for every employee to, to, to have in your portfolio companies? Do you have um, sort of some sort of guidelines or philosophies that you share among your portfolio companies? Yeah, rather than having a one-size-fits-all approach, the advice that I always think of was given to me when I started at Morgan Stanley, and that's the best traders 
are great salespeople and the best salespeople are great traders. So think of what your other does. There's always a counterparty. There's PMs and engineers, investors, operators. Um, so think about what that person that you are persuading needs to learn. If you can pick up some of their basic skill sets, to your earlier point about empathy in the workplace, if you can empathize and think like that other, you're going to be more exceptional in your job what, did you, what do the traders think about that statement, Ben Morgan? <laughs> I was a trader. I think it's great. <laughs> I know. I do too. I did a lot of work with algorithmic trading, and in fact, I actually think that was that's one of the one of the cooler cooler transitions we went through from um, some largely human based trading to uh, sort of the hype around algorithmic trading, which related to all of, all of AI, and then kind of settling with a balanced view. I think nowadays in the middle, even though there's a lot of automated trading, it's um, it's still a very human. Uh, one of my favorite traders used to say, "On volatile, on on uh, predictable days, the algorithms do the best. On any non-volatile day, the humans always do the best, and they have to work together." So uh, fits right with uh, the Morgan Stanley philosophy. I think it's also a great comment on where we are with generative AI, right? So I would say most of the uh, companies coming to me with an automation play are less exciting. The companies coming to me pitching augmentation, right, making that human trader even better at what they do is really exciting and where we're digging in because that's where the nuance lives, the challenge, and it really takes um, strong founders to build those products. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's also where the reality lives, right? I mean, I, I think people are often surprised to find that there are so many traders still on Wall Street, right? Like probably just as many. In fact, uh, another one I was uh, researching recently is that when ATMs were in, uh, introduced in the, in the 70s, the, there were some famous predictions that 75% of tellers would go, go away. But in reality, the number of tellers, there's 50,000 more now than there were then. Um, so, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's an area where people really misunderstand, um, that, you know, tele technology can really elevate, um, you know, sort of the human, human condition, which of course is why we're doing this podcast. All startups, well, most startups can't work in a vacuum, right? You know, they're, they're, they're often selling to, um, you know, their products to talk about empathy, right? Uh, every, you know, a company like Morgan Stanley has, you know, thousands of man years and more of tech, existing technology. So how do you think about, you know, how a company thinks about integrating with a legacy company's existing infrastructure and systems? I think it's what many of our portfolio companies have to do. I'd say that there frequently are two challenges that I'm seeing lately. The first is for the early stage companies that we're working with, it often takes a little bit of white glove onboarding, if you will. So those first design partners, first commercial partners often require a little bit of handholding and there might be higher integrations or specific customization that you're building out for those parties. So as founders, you want to sprint fast, you want to run, but making sure that those initial partnerships are successful is really important. The second is, I think, um, to touch on the generative AI stuff, there's privacy and compliance concerns. So generative AI, the hope that it's promising us is you cut down these information silos, you give these ephemeral insights to knowledge workers and make them more productive and more collaborative. Well, 
management can fairly say, should all employees have access to all this information? So they're really doing kind of their job and their best to make sure that the guardrails are in place, that only those accessing those insights uh, are doing so. So those are the two things that I see lately that um, when you're working with more established players, uh, founders have to be a little bit patient with and navigate in order to make it to the other side and then kind of continue to grow um, from there. Well, that's a good segue into talking about data literacy and how you see things evolving. I, I couldn't agree more. Having just taught a class on generative AI governance, which was uh, the hard part wasn't teaching the classes, figuring out what the heck is going to happen here because so much of it is new. I mean, a lot of people would say that the, the, the underlying algorithms are not new themselves, but it's the prompt-based interfaces and the democratization of them um, that's really taking the world by storm. But um, how do you see maybe the market or, or, or literacy evolving, you know, in this context, not only generative AI, but, you know, as you pointed out really nicely, automation is in general is a, is a huge factor. So how, how do you see specifically, you know, the literacy of the people working in these spaces changing over the next decade? Yeah, I'd love to be on a fly on the wall as you like drew up that syllabus because you're definitely probably one of the one of the first doing so. <laughs> I'd say in 2023, I haven't attended a single board meeting where generative AI, uh, the impacts and what actions they wanted to take as a result weren't on kind of the topic list, if you will. I personally think that the best sentiment is to embrace this, talk about it, figure out how the business will change. Um, one of the common uh, analogies that I like to make that tends to resonate with folks is like, imagine trying to do your job without the internet. Imagine resisting a cell phone, even if it was a flip phone or your iPhone today. Uh, with that said, I can appreciate that there's uh, skepticism and there's a lot of noise out there. So figuring out where to start is small. I tend to advise people to pick like some mundane, repetitive tasks that they themselves dread doing and just try to slowly iterate and tinker with kind of the products available um, to you today as a kind of consumer enterprise worker and, and see what works so that you're kind of just slowly chipping away at learning um, the new, the new prompting, the new skill sets required. So you'll be happy to know that I, so I, I developed this 11 principles of generative AI governance and the very, and number one was, um, it's called, uh, to thrive with AI, you must try AI. And I think, um, I, although I will also say that I've, I, I've, I've pulled, um, the audience each time I've done it. And I'd say 90% of the people that, um, that I've engaged with on the topic, um, have tried it, but only to the extent that they've typed something into Open, AP, open AI, ChatGPT, or Bing, or something, just to get, um, you know, for, as a query engine. You know, but there's so much more to it. You know, image generation, using it creatively to improve your writing. Um, although I think we have to do another podcast on that, since you, uh, with your, with your background uh, academically, I'd love to, to, to. I won't put you on the spot about how you use it, but uh, I, I think it's just a fascinating. It's a fast. It's a it's a fascinating thing people love to talk about, but uh, don't perhaps use as much as they uh, as they're talking about. Talk, talk about some of the things you see uh, that are beyond AI machine learning. I mean, I know that's a big part of your space, but um, do you see other um, technologies? 
that are making progress and disrupting existing industries. How do you position your investments to take advantage of the, those those trends as well? Definitely. So I, I spend most of my time, to your point, in AI, ML, all this generative AI and, and drinking from the fire hose. But I would say there's a lot of other cool, we call internally frontier in like spaces. So our defense team in particular um, has partnered with some founders building in space and manufacturing. That team here at Point72 Ventures is um, a bunch of vets and former uh, intelligence community members that are really passionate about furthering national security. And most interestingly, for myself included, is that many of the dual-use technologies uh, that they are kind of searching for and investing in end up being very transformational in uh, commercial industries as well. So a lot of those technologies also feed back into new sources of data, you know, um, that can be understood with good analytics and um, good data humanists, as we like to call them. Do you see any now, com I mean, common pitfalls or mistakes people are making um, in terms of uh, startups? Maybe, maybe one of them is that everybody has got a generative AI startup. I don't know. Um, although I, I, I just think it, from my point of view, it's got to be kind of part of everything that we do in some cases, like just a, a feature of some, some products. But of course, there's a lot of investment in pure play um, AI right now, obviously. But w w what do you see as um, some, maybe some common mistakes founders make, even in, ter in terms of where they're focusing on the market it, or team composition or, 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 or metrics, OKRs, as you, you talked about, the common pitfalls that Maybe there's some people listening that have an idea that they want to start start up. If they're coming to pitch you, what advice would you give them about don't make this mistake? I think you introduced a lot of interesting things there, and it's for two thoughts. One is, I think if you're a team thinking about a new idea, um, who's around the table with you and who are you lacking? So if you come from an amazing technical background, I really think that if your goal is to augment these human processes, getting someone with deep domain expertise and someone with great product vision makes a really beautiful product that people want to use, they want to live in, and you can slowly bring them to you as you kind of force them to change their own workflows and what they're so accustomed to. On the flip side of that coin, if you are a great product visionary, if you have kind of deep domain expertise in an area, that's incredibly valuable, but it's also awesome to have someone with some technical expertise around the table to kind of tell you the art of what's possible. What can you build versus buy? How can you kind of use off the shelf? Because that's what's really been generated over the last um, year or so is a lot of technology that's going to make building startups easier. So I really think um, look around the table, figure out to, our, to kind of really pull the thread on our conversation. What's the diverse opinion or perspective that's not there? And really go recruit someone fantastic. Your take on um, hiring others and building teams that way reminds me, I think it was Doris Kern's Goodwin book, Team of Rivals, about uh, how Lincoln composed his cabinet with some of his fierce political rivals. And um, maybe that's a good way to, to think about it. It's because it's hard, right? You know, like uh, I think... People, when they're starting companies, do it with their closest, you know, allies and people maybe that think like them. Do you have any, ever any advice about how to sort of convince people to break out of their comfort zone and hire people that are very, very different? Uh, one, I'm 
thrilled. I'm, I have a new download from my Kindle. But uh, two, I think that is really think of it as the job of a founder. I really want people who are compelling, who, um, and you can do that in several different ways. Put your own spin and personality on it, but you should be able to compel um, that initial team and then the subsequent hires with your vision and who you are as a person. I really, truly um, do believe that. So embody it as part of the founder um, role that you are kind of bringing people onto the ship and building that vision together. How do you stay informed about emerging trends and technologies as an investor? I think that's a particularly interesting point of view for folks that may be, you know, down and, you know, trying to start companies, but like, what's the, speaking about the other side, right? Like the people that are writing the checks for these companies or, or recommending investments in companies, you know, what do you pay attention to, um, to keep, uh, you know, on or ahead of the curve? Oh, I think that's a great point. The same way that I learn the jargon, if you will, of different industries that I'm diligencing companies in, I encourage founders to learn our jargon as well. So there's a bunch of um, publications that I, as an investor, kind of constantly, uh, daily keep tabs on. So those are like things like the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the information is a great news source. TechCrunch, MIT Technology Review, uh, Bloomberg, Forbes. These are all things that we, as investors, have kind of in our bookmarks. And then I'd also say that as founders, we're reading um, academic papers, especially in deep tech. So um, me and my team are attending ACL, ICML, so those deep technical expertise um, and canvassing the market in both directions. I love your mention of the academic papers. It's one of my favorites to try to read PhD papers by, uh, by people when I either interview them or just meet them or, or look at the company. In fact, I generally speaking, just skip the website and go to, okay, did this person, did anybody write a patent here? Right. Even if you don't understand all the tech, right? Like I always, I just like, okay, I read the abstract uh, or and the conclusions, right? And that, that really. Uh... You can use some generative AI. It helps. <laughs> Academic papers and travel planning. Those are two that are very frequent uses on the deep tech team. Wait, travel planning? Oh, yes. Yeah. So you can go down a wormhole there. Like, what should I do when I'm in X city? What's the best restaurants? How should I do this? So, pretty good. Covered a lot of ground. I'd love to hear your take of all the things we've touched upon. There's there's a lot of great points. What what do you think is the number one takeaway that any leader should take? I think the biggest thing is not to get paralyzed. Figure out how to chip away and start from someplace. And then most importantly, bring your team along with you. Really empower people um, at your organization to surface these use cases. We just did it ourselves, right? Like part of it is sharing how do you do a good prompt? How do you kind of find these use cases where there is higher value? So if you like encourage your team, if you're a great founder, you've hired great people, believe in their ability to surface novel use cases and ways that you can drive your business's efficiency, productivity, collaboration forward. So um, I'd say just chip away and really encourage people to experiment and iterate. Love it. Um, Tara, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you and, um, I hope everybody, this is a very different, um, perspective that we've had, uh, on, on this podcast where we're really looking at it from how investors think about, uh, the evolving world of technology, data science and data. So thanks a lot for joining us. This has been great.
Awesome. Thank you, Mar. Next, we'll hear from Satya, a graduate of the Correlation One Data Skills for All Empowerment Program. This segment was recorded in 2021 when Satya was selected to give an address to his fellow program graduates. I'm an electrical engineering and physics major at Stanford. I'm particularly interested in quantum computing, solar energy and material science, and developing software to sort of fuel both of these. I started off way back in high school with a science fair project to measure the efficiencies of solar panels outside my house. I discovered methods to improve the efficiency of solar cells by as much as 54%. I then switched to a different form of energy, nuclear fusion, and learning about it at Princeton's Plasma Physics Lab, where I com used computer vision to track particles in the world's largest fusion devices. After that, I came to Stanford, where I was a cross-team lead in Stanford's Space Initiative, the largest engineering student group on campus. I also started helping TA for two classes, and am now working in the Chemie department's Chin Lab to use machine learning to discover entirely new polymers to use in a wide variety of electronic devices. Coming in, I really didn't know much about data science or data analytics. Uh, however, a friend recommended that I apply for the ds for a empowerment program and sort of give it a shot. So I gave it my best shot, but really didn't know what to expect. I was immediately blown away by Professor Pillai's curriculum and DSPRA's exceptional educational materials. The notebooks that they gave us in place of lectures, while also sort of helping us through each notebook to understand the material, uh, were exceptional. Each problem and each lecture topic had a specific business case that we could draw insights from and also understand how to analyze if we were given an appropriate uh, problem like that in the real world. We also had central ideas to investigate each weekend and also enough leading questions to push us to explore the new concepts we were learning about without taking the fun away from it. The group project, though, was definitely my favorite part. I was so lucky to have an amazing team of fellows uh, that were extremely dedicated and really motivated to solve our problem. My team worked on creating a predictive model for Louisiana County's flood risks in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Our new addition to this field was using socioeconomic data in combination with, with geographical and topological data to provide a new look into analyzing flood, flood risk. Specifically, our models accounted for systemic racism and infrastructure funding, awarding higher risks to consistently neglected areas than other models that only valued geographical flood risk. It was an amazing experience to help my team members and learn alongside them, create project ideas, and help lead the team through pivots, redirections, and eventually split up tasks to develop a fully working machine learning model, beautiful dashboard, and a wonderful presentation. We were lucky enough to win the crowd favorite award as well as third place overall. I'll be working at Point72 as a data engineering intern, and I will be lucky enough to not only be doing a bit of data infrastructure and engineering, but also working on consumer sector machine learning projects alongside the data engineering team. I'm extremely excited to learn the core of data engineering alongside other interns. The most exciting part of the internship is being able to work on a variety of projects and gaining the knowledge of how to build full-scale production platforms to handle data wherever I go after this internship. DSPRA staff posted multiple internships for Point72 positions throughout fall and early winter, so I decided to apply when they posted one of them. It was amazing to know that Point70 recruiters would have a list of DSFRA fellows' names and that we wouldn't just be another resume in the hundreds or thousands that they would have to receive. I kept in contact with Point72 recruiters throughout the entire process, fueled by the encouragement of DSFRA. And throughout the long interview process, uh, I also received a lot of support from my fellows uh, in my project team, and I was lucky enough to get my offer on Christmas Day.
What an amazing journey for Satya. I loved his story for three reasons. First, even though he came into the program with tremendous science background, he lacked data science or analytic skills. Correlation One's program is designed to empower and train learners to achieve a high level of data literacy regardless of their background or experience. Secondly, Satya worked on real-world business challenges during his training. His learning experience was practical and hands-on in a small team setting. And then finally, Satya was selected for his incredible data engineering internship at Point72. He gained working experience in a new field and learned how to build full-scale production platforms. And two years later, he's become a researcher at Stanford's Schools of Medicine and Engineering and is interning at Apple. So why does Satya's story matter? He came to Correlation One's program without any data skills, but left with a high level of data literacy that he's now no doubt utilizing in his career path as a material scientist. Data literacy is a critical skill that can empower any professional, and it's up to business leaders to enable access to data literacy through training. We close with a segment we call the big number. We heard from Tara Stokes about how AI drives a critical need for innovation across Point72 Ventures portfolio companies and the broader workforce. We also heard from Satya about how important it was for him to gain new data skills, which most certainly have been of great use across his experiences at Point72, Stanford, and Apple. So this week, our big number is 30. That's the number of years it took us to reach 5 billion global internet users over time. And just as the internet has become a critical part of the daily life for billions of users, so too will bleeding edge tools like AI. It's up to business leaders to ensure that their teams are prepared and comfortable with the skills needed to drive business results from AI as it becomes an everyday tool for the enterprise. To do that, we need ubiquitous data literacy. We need data humanized.